Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we ask if Matteo Renzi has what it takes to solve Italy's problems. And as Scotland's independence referendum campaign heats up, we look at what Scotland's vote could mean for Ireland. But we start in Italy, where President Giorgio Napolitano has asked Matteo Renzi, the mayor of Florence, to form a new government. The move follows the resignation of Enrico Letta as Prime Minister after an internal coup in the centre-left Democratic Party. Mr Renzi has promised to reform Italy's electoral system, public administration, tax system and labour laws, all within the next three months. To assess his prospects of success, I'm joined now from Rome by our correspondent, Paddy Agnew. First of all, Paddy, who is Matteo Renzi? Uh, That is a good question. Matteo Renzi uh, has been the man in the Italian left for uh, the last four years. He basically uh, burst onto the uh, national consciousness in uh, 2010 when he he held uh, a meeting of uh, centre-left, his own centre-left followers, up in Florence, because he is the mayor of Florence. And at that meeting, he came up with the idea that uh, basically the time had come to put all the uh, nomenclature, all the ruling class of his own centre-left Democratic Party to put them on the scrappy. And he's been known ever since as the Rotomatori, which, uh, which is a demolition man. So he, uh, he managed to get rid of Enrico Letta. How did he manage to do that? Well, basically, the momentum that ended up with the, uh, the, the, the Department of Office of Letta started uh, last uh, December because uh, there were primaries, we had primaries uh, for the leadership of the Democratic Party. Mr. Letta won those, as we expected, won those, uh, sorry, Mr. Renzi won those uh, primaries very convincingly. And from that moment on, he got a lot of momentum going. And he clearly decided that rather than uh, sit around for maybe another year while Enrico Letta's uh, coalition government uh, remained in power and, and, and did ordinary government business, he uh, basically this was the moment to, to seize the initiative. The wind was in the sails. Uh, and he he's a, he's a tremendous amount of energy. Somebody's described him to me as a, a sort of uh, a walking tsunami. And he, he felt at the time had come to put that energy to work and to uh, get on with uh, trying to uh, trying to uh, implement in Italy the various reforms that you just uh, outlined in the introduction, reforms which Mr. Letta's government uh, were unable to really uh, implement. In his proposal to reform the electoral system, uh, Mr. Renzi finds himself in an unlikely alliance with Silvio yeah. Berlusconi. What are they up to? Yeah, that, this is the thing that concerns people uh, greatly in Italy, perhaps not uh, elsewhere, but he, uh, a lot of his own supporters of the Democratic Party don't understand this. It, within uh, practically days of winning the uh, Democratic Party primaries in uh, December, he met Mr. Berlusconi to have a discussion on electoral reform. Like everybody else, obviously, uh, Mr. Renzi realizes uh, and, and, uh, that... Yeah, Italy can go nowhere at the moment with the current electoral legislation introduced in 2005 by Mr. Berlusconi. It's essentially a piece of legislation which makes the Senate ungovernable, and given that the Senate and the lower house have the same weight in the Italian constitution, uh, the, the electoral law essentially makes Italy ungovernable. So it has to be repealed, but the parties cannot agree on So uh, Renzi's uh, reasoning is the first thing I've got to do to get this uh, 
to, to, to write the ship is to get a new electoral legislation through Parliament. To do that, I need the support of Berlusconi, who remains the most powerful figure on the centre-right, despite the fact that he's uh, convicted for uh, tax fraud and he's been expelled from the Senate. Uh, and therefore he said, OK, um, we've got to deal with him. I mean, uh, about a week ago, I asked the man who's been uh, dealing with him, uh, uh, he is uh, an electoral uh, uh, law advisor, I asked him, well, this is not an ethical question here. Here you are making one of the most important decisions going to face Italy and the Italian future, and you're doing uh, just two people are deciding it uh, in a room, and one of those two people happens to be convicted for a tax fraud, and he's just been thrown out of the Senate. Is there not an ethical problem here? And the response that came to you from uh, Professor Roberto Dallamonte, who's the man in question, he said, well, that's, that's, those are just ethical questions. This is real politic, and this is the only way we can get this reform through. Uh, finally, Paddy, the markets seem to be ready to give Mr Renzi a chance. Yeah. What about the Italian people, are they? I think the Italian people are very, very wary. I mean, there's a sense among uh, a number of commentators and a number of uh, centre-left supporters that there's a sense of uh, this is almost the last chance there's a, uh, there's a very great weariness amongst the Italian people Paddy Agnew in Rome, thank you Seven months before Scotland votes in a referendum on the question should Scotland be an independent country the campaign has suddenly started heating up in the past few days Britain's Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne has warned that an independent Scotland wouldn't be allowed to keep the pound as its currency and European Commission President José Manuel Barroso has said it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for an independent Scotland to join the European Union. Scotland's First Minister, Alex Salmond, responded to Mr Osborne's threat by saying that if Scotland couldn't keep the pound, it wouldn't take on its share of the United Kingdom's national debt. And he dismissed Mr Barroso's remarks as campaign rhetoric. To discuss all this, I'm joined here in studio by Irish Times columnist Paul Gillespie, who has written a paper for the Institute of Europe, International and European Affairs on the implications for Ireland of Scotland's referendum, and from London by our London editor Mark Hennessy. Mark, how significant is this ratcheting up of the rhetoric in the referendum campaign, and how damaging is it for the yes side? Well, it's quite significant, and it is damaging to the yes side, uh, regardless of the number of times that they claim that it isn't, because uh, certainly when it comes to the detailed research, the issues on which middle ground Scotland is beginning to uh, to look at the referendum is in terms of whether what currency they will be using, what where their pensions are going to be paid from. It's all about bread and butter issues. And the reason why we're in this situation at all is because uh, Alex Salmond has made the very reasonable judgment that it's necessary to hold on to Sterling if he is going to persuade middle ground Scotland to join him in voting yes on September 18th. Uh, you will remember many years ago, or some years ago, Alex Hammond was a great uh, fan of, of Euro membership. That obviously has faded as the economic crisis across Europe uh, has uh, uh, existed and then got worse for, for a period. So he, he now has a situation where he is in a position where the British uh, all of the major British parties are saying that under no circumstances will uh, an independent Scotland be allowed to have uh, the continued use of sterling. He's claiming that it, it's bullying and that it's all part of a rhetoric uh, coming from London uh, that is seeking to keep Scots downtrodden. And that shouldn't be uh, uh, ignored in the context of this referendum campaign. There is certainly a feeling in Scotland amongst many people that that relationship with London is fractured and things that are seen to be disrespectful could have 
uh, a far greater uh, connection with voters than perhaps some people in London uh, do realise. Nevertheless, the basic principles of the Salmond argument that's, that Sterling is a common possession and that they've got the continued rights to use it after, an ele- after a yes vote, but also to remain part of the Bank of England and to remain part of the policy-making process, whilst at the same time having no control from London over their tax and spending. That argument as a whole simply doesn't stand up. And what about uh, Salmon's argument or his threat that if you don't let us remain part of Sterling that we're not going to, uh, to carry our share of the British national debt? Probably not the wisest comment he's ever made in his life. The Treasury made a statement about six or eight weeks ago where they said to the markets that the London would be responsible for all of Scotland's debt, regardless of what happened in the referendum itself. Now, that was done to reassure markets that coming into September that there was nothing going to be coming up on the horizon that would any way impact on the cost of Treasury bonds. It didn't mean that the the Treasury are saying we will pick up uh, all the tab. They they just simply wanted to close down the hatches and make sure that nobody could start any uh, problems for them uh, uh, in trading. Now, having Salmon saying what he said uh, create, will create a, a certain issue in, in the minds of some uh, market traders, or it could be used by them uh, to argue that Scotland is somehow a bad risk were it to become independent, because if that were to happen, it would obviously have to issue its own debt in, in some shape or form. And all of that, uh, that sort of past rhetoric where people, uh, their credit rating, for instance, uh, for, to, to use that word, um, would be brought under question. So probably not the smartest uh, thing that uh, Alex Salmond has ever said. Uh, meanwhile, Jose Manuel Barroso's intervention, which took a lot of people by surprise as to why he uh, wanted to get into this uh, whole uh, debate so soon. What are the merits of, uh, of what he says? Is he right when he says that it would be almost impossible for Scotland to uh, join the European Union? Well, I mean, there's a legal argument, first of all, as to whether Scotland, uh, which wouldn't be independent the day after a yes vote in September were that to happen, there is an 18-month process of negotiation. And the SNP are making the argument that on September 19, the Scotland is still part of the United Kingdom for another 18 months. And from within the UK and within its uh, role of UK mem- or EU membership, that it would then negotiate its own separate membership of the United, of the European Union. So it would never leave, therefore it would never have to reapply. That is essentially the essence of the SNP argument. The difficulty that, uh, and the point that the SNP refused to engage on is that there are countries in uh, elsewhere in the European Union, not just Spain, uh, which has a the problem with, with Catalonia and fears of secession there, but there are others as well who believe that if Scotland was to uh, to go independent and to become a, a member of the European Union without any difficulties, would f- uh, fan the flames of secession in their own countries. So any of the attitudes that are being adopted by those countries has got nothing to do with Scotland or any feeling of ill will towards Scotland. It it is simply a question that they fear what could happen on their own doorstep if everything was to be made easy for the Scots. Paul Gillespie, you suggest in your paper that Scotland's choice has to be seen in the context of Britain's renegotiation of its relationship in general with the European Union. Can you explain that? Yes. Following on from Mark's point there, I think it needs to be 
understood that the negotiation over that 18 months, if Scotland were to vote, vote yes, would be about their arrangements, including their mutual arrangements in the European Union. And therefore, the outcome of that, would it could be a, a raucous and bitter negotiation, but the outcome is likely to be a consensus view from London and Edinburgh that uh, Scotland, it seems to me, would would remain uh, or should remain a member of the European Union. And this process of negotiation is legitimate. And this was actually said by the Spanish foreign minister in an interview recently. Uh, he, he, so he took a, actually a very different line to Barroso. Uh, the, the point of distinction there was between the, the legitimacy of the UK process, because it's been democratically agreed, uh, London accepts, will accept the outcome of the referendum, whereas the Spanish government does not accept the right of the Catalans to, to make such a, a decision. Now, the linkage is both of calendar. Um, if Scotland votes no, that is, things remain the same, uh, you still have the problem that the UK has uh, wants to, uh, the Conservatives certainly want to renegotiate their position in the EU. If Scotland has rather similar Eurosceptic attitudes to many people in England. But fundamentally, the Scottish interest in, in the EU is far different, it seems to me. It's much more like the Irish than the English uh, attitude in, this, in a kind of existential way, that they want to be in, involved in this wider setting uh, which empowers a smaller state compared to a larger one. Now, if you have uh, an outcome... Uh, in, the, in, in any, English, in, in any refer UK referendum where the... Uh, outcome would be a majority vote to withdraw, uh, which would be carried by an English majority against the Scottish uh, view to stay in, uh, you'd have a, it seems to me, you'd simply reopen the, the Scottish question again. So that's a linkage. And it, there's a deeper linkage too, in that we're seeing the unfolding of a structural change in the British political system, uh, which links the internal and external issues of sovereignty together. And I think it, it, it's important to see that linkage. Now, you believe that uh, regardless regardless of the outcome of this referendum, that it's going to have big implications for Ireland. So can we just take uh, these options in turn? If uh, the Scots vote in favour of independence, what are the implications for Ireland there? Well, uh, you've got the negotiation <coughs> I referred to. Uh, uh, suddenly, uh, the UK isn't as large as it was. It, 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 it seems to me immediately loses a kind of geopol geopolitical influence, irrespective of the outcome of the precise negotiations with, with an independent Scotland. The UK itself is smaller. Uh, the traumatic effect on unionists in the Northern Ireland is... It, it, it's very important to understand, particularly for the Presbyterian loyalist strand which supports the DUP, uh, but the other strand of unionism uh, which takes the Britishness and the UK uh, citizenship so much more important, sees a weakening of those links. Now, uh, obviously, the, the parties campaigning for unity in the north of Ireland, including Sinn Féin, are likely to see this as a, a fillip to their campaigning. Uh, I think it puts the issue of Irish unification on the political agenda in a way that's quite unanticipated north and south at the moment. I'm not predicting that Irish unification would flow from Scottish independence, uh, but we, we need to be much more prepared for that discussion, and it, in many ways it could be a healthy one. The second uh, aspect um, if, if Scotland votes no for, for independence, it's the outcome will be certainly a deeper devolution. And the effects of a deeper devolution, including tax and spend powers in Scotland, uh, would have a knock-on effect uh, to Northern Ireland and to Wales. And the effect in Northern Ireland would be to, it seems to me, reopen uh, 
open up this question of the transfers that flow uh, to the north, which are very large, uh, and that formula would be uh, reopened, and that would be a great difficulty for uh, the government in Northern Ireland. Uh, Mark, do you share this view that the implications for Ireland, north and south, are as, are as significant as Paul is suggesting? Most certainly. I think that potentially the, the situation could become very, very difficult. Now, obviously, it's one that would have um, advantages, too, because, you know, Celtic nations, there are, there's a relationship that could be developed over a period of years and decades that could be very beneficial to both sides. But there is no doubt that there would be very significant short-term disruption. Uh, and England and Wales and Northern Ireland together, whatever the name that's put on it, is going to be a very different beast to uh, the one that is currently there, were that to happen, even though the Scots only amount to 5 million out of uh, the entire population, there is no doubt that uh, the political narrative uh, would change. For instance, the formation of governments in London uh, without Scottish Labour MPs, for instance, it becomes much more difficult for Labour to form a majority government. There would be a belief that, and you would find it talking to conservative MPs, some of, the, some of them would, would believe that it, it foretells an era of permanent uh, Tory rule. Now, clearly that is never going to happen. You would get one or two elections where the Tories would have it, and then uh, the system would, would accommodate to the new uh, reality that exists within the, the borders that would be defined at that point, and you would have a whole variety of new parties that would come on the scene almost certainly, because the situation never stays static uh, politically. Um, equally, you've got issues about uh, free travel, for instance, and this could be more Im impact on Northern Ireland uh, than perhaps on, on the United on the, uh, the on the Republic, because most traffic already between Ireland and uh, and Britain it requires a passport, even if it's not state demanded; it is demanded by the carriers. Whereas uh, people who are flying from Belfast uh, to British airports. Uh, don't have to produce the same documentation. Now, that is something that could almost certainly would, would, would be changed uh, over a period of years so that you would end up with an all-Ireland um, uh, immigration policy being adopted by the, the remaining British authorities because they wouldn't have any other choice and they wouldn't have any other way in which uh, that could happen. And there is a historical precedent for that because it's exactly what happened uh, in 1939 at the outbreak of the Second World War and it continued up until 1952. And if you go back through the House of Commons Hansard, you will find numerous references from Unionist MPs in the late 40s bitterly complaining that uh, a British citizen travelling to within Britain was having to produce travel documents to go about his or her lawful business. So it, it, it creates, um, uh, it would create, were it to happen, a very different sentiment. Now, all of the polls at the moment are saying that the Scots uh, won't um, uh, uh, vote for independence, although equally there is no doubt that there has been a greater sense of confidence amongst the yes uh, campaigners since uh, last uh, October, November. I was at the Scottish National Party conference in Perth uh, last autumn and it was the first time that I'd seen uh, open uh, worries being expressed by SNP figures or SNP members at fringe meetings. That's not something that normally happened. But after that, there has been an increase in confidence and a greater belief that they can, with a ground war, where they're going out into estates and they're doing very strong voter registration campaigns and engagement at community level, that they can get a vote out from places that previously didn't produce much of a vote. Now, if all of that were to happen, and if 
the debate in Scotland over the last week about currency and about George Osborne getting involved and Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, if all of that is seen by a sufficiently large percentage of people in Scotland as being bullying by London rather than rational warnings about a rational problem, then uh, that will have uh, an impact on uh, the overall vote. And most people who have been looking at this have always believed that uh, the vote finally will end up something like 60-40 in favour of staying in the union. Now, if if that happens, then there is going to be a very uh, strong demand for greater devolution, and that gets back to the point that uh, Paul was making, so that you end up with um, you know a, a home rule Scotland effectively by uh, anything other than a, another name, and all of that is going to impact on the kind of policies that the Republic are going to uh, follow, because we will be facing greater competition for FDI, and uh, uh, there will be changes on, on corporation tax, and there could be all sorts of changes that none of us could even predict this moment in time. Paul, how alive is the Irish system uh, and government to the enormous implications that we've been hearing about, regardless of the outcome of the vote? I think quite insufficiently alive. Um, uh, they're much more alive to the European issue, the dangers there of, of a dissociation between Ireland and the UK, uh, perhaps than they are to the Scottish one. And they're not at all adequately alive to the linkage between these two processes. Um, I, I think people have been you know, writing about it more, coming to more attention. Mark's reportage and other people reporting from Scotland makes a big difference there. And obviously there's you know, the, the seven months to go. Uh, but it re- it, I, if Ireland needs a foreign policy towards Britain, which is not simply determined by the north of Ireland. And in fact, Ireland has had uh, over over the years, oh, there's always been this east-west relationship, it's very strong uh, uh, and enduring between the two states. Uh, and it hasn't had, I think, sufficient attention. And uh, I think there isn't probably a sufficient political and diplomatic effort being put into the need to analyse and understand the changing relationship between the two states. If we're heading for the, the Eurozone, it's a deeper Eurozone, uh, and if the British are heading out of that, uh, I mean, if Britain withdraws completely, the Northern Ireland, the border with Northern Ireland becomes the EU border. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a radical break. Uh, and we need, therefore, a regime to manage this, these changes. Now, this was put in place by Cameron and uh, Enda Kenny a couple of years ago. It's up for review again. It's an important link, intergovernmental link, which brings uh, annu- twice annually secretary generals of all the government departments in each government uh, together. This is something along the lines of the Franco-German uh, arrangement. Uh, and that will be very much needed if any of these, any or all of these changes happen. So I think, I think the system is becoming much more alert now to it. Mark, you're a very close observer of the uh, of these contacts between the British and Irish governments. To what extent is the Scottish issue on the agenda? Well, not as much as it should be. I mean, I think at the moment the Irish government are in a position where they don't want to be seen to be expressing too many opinions about Scotland because it would rightly be seen in Scotland and perhaps elsewhere as being an interference in British domestic affairs. And we've had too many occasions in the past where uh, the argument has been interpreted to the contrary when uh, British people have, our politicians have made comments about Ireland. So clearly they are going to have to err on the side of caution. Equally, there is a belief that whatever we're seeing at the moment is a certain degree of huff and bluster and Scotland will stay in. So therefore, you know, not that much will change. But the reality is that 
everything is going to change after September 18, uh, regardless of what the result is. Either we will have an independent Scotland or we will have uh, a Scotland that will get substantially more uh, uh, devolution powers than it currently enjoys. And all of that is going to impact on the nature of the relationship between Ireland and Scotland and Ireland and Britain uh, over coming decades. It may take some time for it to feed through, but certainly Irish business and uh, uh, culturally and every other way, we need to be paying far more attention to Scotland than we're currently doing. Finally, Mark, uh, as you were saying, the yes side is behind and yet the no side seems to have lacked a certain spring in its step until now. Where do you see the referendum campaign and debate going? Is this the start of a more aggressive phase of it, do you think? It is, and I think the danger for Scotland is that they will end up with so many divisions between people who were once friends or neighbours that there could be consequences for the future. And that is something you already get signals of in Scotland when one travels around there. People are somewhat, they're more, they're more inclined to actually express an opinion to an outsider than they are to a fellow Scot, lest they cause offence. And depending on how uh, that uh, feeling strengthens, then you know that there could be longer-term uh, consequences down the road. Mark Hennessy in London and Paul Gillespie, thank you. And Paul Gillespie's paper, Scotland's Vote on Independence, The Implications for Ireland, is available at IIEA.com. And that's all from this edition of Worldview from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Robert Sullivan, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.